Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, psychedelics, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCC Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Nick and host Emeritus Lewis Goldberg are back for a new episode with special guest retired Brigadier General Stephen N. Zanakis, MD, Executive Director of the American Psychedelic Practitioners Association, also known as APA. Steve joins us this week to discuss what led him to the military and psychiatry and what it's like taking his path while his peers explore drugs and the counterculture movement as well as his work with APA and its publishing of the first professional practice guidelines for psychedelic-assisted therapy practitioners. In this conversation, Steve also helps us better understand our veteran and military men and women's behavioral health needs and how his psychiatric and military experience uniquely primed him to help APA in its mission to safely integrate psychedelics into the U.S. healthcare system. If you're interested in learning more about Steve and the work he's doing with the team at APA, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Steve and APA on LinkedIn and other top social media platforms. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with retired Brigadier General Stephen N. Zanakis of the American Psychedelic Practitioners Association. Retired Brigadier General Stephen Zanakis, also the Executive Director of the American Psychedelic Practitioners Association. Thank you so much for, for joining us here on the Green Rush today. Um, before we get started, we got a long list of questions that we'd love to cover, but um, can you first take a couple minutes to introduce yourself to our audience and, and um, give them some of your background and, and um, you know what ultimately brought you into the psychedelic space? Well, thanks. Uh, I really appreciate the chance to meet with you all today and to be in this conversation. Uh, I am, as you said, I'm a retired Army officer, I'm a retired Brigadier General, and uh, career military, active service for close to 30 years. And I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a physician uh, that has clinical practice and done some research over all those um, during that time. Uh, I came into the military as uh, my father was career uh, career Air Force officer. Uh, he had served in World War II and uh, then was recalled, served in Korea and stayed in. And in fact, uh, when I was in high school, uh, he was stationed uh, in Tachikawa, Japan. We went over there in 1963. Uh, I went to high school there at uh, military high schools and uh, he was flying to Vietnam. So I come from a military background and uh, I felt I felt that uh, part of what was being my my contribution and and what was being a, a good American was to serve in the military. And I went on and had a career uh, for all those years. So you graduated high school 67, 68? 66, I graduated. 66. Well, we were, I was there from 63 to 66. Uh, and uh, then I 
<clears throat> needed scholarships to go to uh, to go to college. Uh, and uh, I thought, well, really, look, I, I don't think I want to go to one of the military academies. Uh, I was a good student. And so I took a scholarship to, to go to uh, ROTC scholarships that were just, in fact, being offered. And I ended up going to Princeton and spent four years there, graduated there in 1970. And on graduation, I was commissioned. You know, you were in college during probably the the heyday of the psychic, you know, the consumer psychedelics or the, the you know, the psychedelic revolution taking place in the United States. You know, that was the Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, uh, the Grateful Dead period. And you were in the ROTC. When you saw your peers tuning in, turning on and dropping out, how did you look at that? Like, what was your take on that? Well, my take on it was that I was intrigued by it. I mean, the as you sort indicated here, as you've been telling us, it was a really tumultuous, chaotic time. And we were really challenging all of us as students some fundamental ideas. And uh, we were in the really thinking very strongly, like we really needed to shift here. Uh, I certainly felt very strongly about that. Uh, and as happens, you know, sometimes you get people get polarized and we certainly see that today where you've got uh, people on the far right and far left. Uh, frankly, that never made sense to me. You know, things are much more complex. Perhaps it's my Greek heritage where we kind of think about things in moderation, try and balance. There's a dialectic. Let's bring everything in here and let's be somewhat contemplative about it mm -hmm. and uh, in that way be Socratic. So I watched all this unfold. Uh, I wondered, like, what was important here, try to discern what the essence was, what it meant for being uh, a, a good officer, what it meant to be a good American, what it meant to be a good citizen, uh, what it meant for, I mean, in those days, my college was an all-male school. Uh, was that a, a, a good thing to do? Uh, what it meant to empower, you know, all these other groups that felt marginalized. I certainly understood that. I, my family had been an immigrant family, so I uh, appreciated what how hard that was. So there were some really Im important social issues and political issues uh, that needed to be explored. And I felt that this was a place to do that. I welcomed our chance to be in this conversation, in this debate. Now, I was not going to be a, a, a draft dodger. Uh, I really, irrespective of what I saw was going on politically and what I disagreed with, I welcomed the chance to be an American. I mean, my mm -hmm. family came to this country from a war-torn um, Greek island. I mean, it wasn't even a nation when they came over here and they were and are all grateful that they had opportunities here that they would not have had had they stayed uh, in Chios in Greece where they were from. And so this was part of being a good American. 
irrespective of how hard it is, right? It's tough, but yeah. you got to do what you got to do. I, I would love to go down this path, but that's not what this podcast is about. Yeah, as I much understand. as, no, honestly, Steve, like the, 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 I have very strong feelings and beliefs about, about citizenship and, and um, the integration of who we are as a nation. And this is not that place, but we can have that conversation separately. Um, so you get commissioned in the ROTC. At what point did you then say, I want to be a doctor and specifically I want to be a doctor of the mind. Um, and how did you square the commission in the military with, you know, the, your Hippocratic oath? Uh, so, I mean, it, first of all, I mean, it took a while to, to feel comfortable that I was wanting to be a doctor and I was going to be a good doctor. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. And I take it very, very seriously. Uh, and I even then felt the, that weight of, I was, people were going to, um, it was a privilege. I feel strongly that it's a privilege, uh, as metaphorically to wear the white coat and um it took many years frankly for me to uh, feel comfortable that i deserve to wear that and that people could and that i had that privilege to help them uh having said that i i did think that what i could do best in order to fulfill my goals and uh, my values was to be a physician I didn't think there was a physician, a, a conflict between being a physician in the military and just and not being in the military. Again, because I think it's, you know, it, we need to have the best doctors, lawyers, all professionals in our military for us to have the best military and for us to be the d democracy and republic that we are as a country. So I, I didn't feel that there was a conflict there in terms of what my role and responsibilities as a doctor would be and being as an army officer. In fact, I, I've written since then considerably uh, about dual responsibilities. And uh, I, I very much think that that's where we all have to um, accept that we have these multiple responsibilities and that sometimes there is a tension, but that's where our judgment and comes into play. And that's where it becomes important for us to do things. So I came into the military and decided to become a doctor. And uh, in the course of my career, um, the focus was on the health, the mental health, the welfare of our soldiers and their families. I mean, if we're going to be a good military and if we're going to be a good military in this country, in this democracy, in this republic, then we need to have those individuals who are healthy and feel healthy and have with that a good mental health and outlook and their families, because they're the most important. Uh, um, they're the most important aspect. You know, they're they really are what make us strong. So I, I felt that was my mission, continue to feel that that's a mission and purpose. And that's what, in fact, motivates me and organizes what I do. I, and I want to uh, stick on that because, you know, you, you brought up a really good point about having to straddle that line between, you know, the military service and, and the, the, the medical science that you were doing at the same time. Um, can you expand a little bit more on like what was the process for taking care of mental health you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago um, for the military and, you know, 
where you thought that process was working and where you thought it failed, because I think there's been a lot of evolution in, in how we think about it over these last couple of decades. So I'm interested in your perspective, you know, dealing with PTSD, especially coming out of the Vietnam War and all of that. Um, you know, how how big of a challenge was it when that you were facing? Well, it was a, it was a huge challenge and it um, really focused what we were doing. I mean, it um, you know, any of us who are students of history, and uh, even as I was hearing the stories that my father would talk about from World War II and uh, then Korea, uh, we you learned that having been exposed to combat, having been in a war zone, it had a profound impact. And that that impact uh, informed the individual's life, the soldier's life or the airman's life, informed the family's life, and then came into, spilled over into the community. Maybe you could go back hundreds of years in our family and uh, what happened in the 19th century in Europe. And it, you can't, I think, escape the idea that all that tension and fighting and loss of life really significantly caused huge social and political problems. And uh, we needed to pay attention to that. So I felt that from the beginning, this was something <clears throat> I had to contemplate and explore as I was doing what I was going to be best for our, our army and for our country and understand that and understand that there were that we had young men and women who went to Vietnam and were uh, emotionally, you know, very ripped up by it and they came home and uh, I felt very strongly that it was what we needed to do was help them heal from that and move on and have the best lives that they could ha they could have and this was well before we did the diagnosis of PTSD I mean I got commissioned in 1970 we didn't really decide that it was an officially a diagnosis until 1980 or, or so but you could just hear what people were saying. You could watch their lives and say, wow, this has really got a profound. I mean, it was shell shock, right? I mean, I remember that that term came to, to you know, prominence following World War One and the, the massive artillery bombardments and the, the soldiers coming back from serving in the trenches. And it was, you know, again, repeated you know, after the Spanish War, you know, uh, in in Europe, and then again after World War II. And I don't know if your father talked about either himself or buddies suffering from shell shock, but it's always been the same. It's it's it is post traumatic stress disorder, right? It's just described differently. I um, think so. And the interesting thing about the shell shock is when I was working on some projects uh, twenty years ago, and uh, looking at what we could do better from our with our soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan and the IED blasts, uh, I really looked and and was reading some of the reports from the World War One, and I think those men and those men, particularly some women that were in those trenches, really were suffering from the actual blast percussion from the artillery shells as well. So this has been around for some time. And uh, this is what happens when people go to war. Look, we're, we are 
this is a podcast that we talk about the business of, of cannabis and psychedelics, right? And we're here to talk about psychedelics specifically. Um, and, you know, these soldiers who are suffering from PTSD, hopefully sometime in 2024, we will see the FDA approve um, MDMA therapy to treat PTSD. But the military has a long history with psychedelics, right? Going back to the, the late 50s and the early 60s with the MK Ultra experiments, you are a former brigadier general, right? You, you were a chesty, having all of the, the, you know, the, the medals on your chest. And you now work in the psychedelic industry. How, how do we, you know, bring together the, that cognitive dissonance that, like, you're military, you're a military doctor, and the not that you did it, but the military fucked with LSD and soldiers without their knowledge. And like there is this history of abuse um, because they looked at, at LSD as a potential mind control drug. Like, how do you look at this and how do you then turn to whether it's an above ground therapist or an underground therapist and say, look, I get it. And here's the story. Like, what is that story that you tell? Well, what's important is that anything that can help can also harm. And I think we've known that in the military. I, I in fact, uh, had colleagues, older colleagues, who were part of those early experiments and had the opportunity to talk to them about what they felt was what they were doing and if they felt it was ethical or not. And there was it wasn't a, just one person saying, look, we're going to go out and we're going to do these things because we can. There is a, certainly a, a, a very deep concern in, in many of these doctors and leaders' minds of are they doing the right thing? Now, some of these things went off the rails and bad things happened. Um, but this was, you know, now you're looking at 60 years ago, and it wasn't just in the military. It also happened a lot in medicine, right? We've got the whole story of the Tuskegee experiments uh, and syphilis. So medicine had not progressed uh, to the way that we understood how you went about and got informed consent and this is what a good protocol is and this is what the might be harmed for somebody's who gets into these kinds of experiments and activities so but this was the era and certainly uh harmful things things we now absolutely know were wrong were wrong and were done that way did we learn from them? Did I, my generation of doctors learn from it and understand that we needed to be smarter about it and uh, be more thoughtful? I think so. It's interesting that uh, for me, and I remember it vividly, that when I signed in to Letterman Army Medical Center as an intern, July 1st, 1974, uh, the Vietnam War was still getting going on, I got two ID cards. I got my active duty ID card and I got a Geneva ID card. And one of the senior doctors, a colonel who had been to Vietnam said, you need to remember that the Geneva conventions really are most important and determine what you do. You've got to abide by those laws, by those conventions. You're a doctor, here's the red cross on this ID card. 
and your responsibility as a doctor in uniform, even your if you're in uniform, is really what's the primary responsibility and obligation that you have. So we all grew up in that generation, now almost 50 years ago, knowing that that was a prime responsibility and we were going to learn from what had been the missteps of some of our for you know uh senior people that had preceded us uh i hold that right now and uh and and i think that what that what it informs is here we have an opportunity to take a treatments or a set of treatments that we think can be very helpful and figure out how to do them right with safety, make sure that they're safe, and make sure that we're treating the right patients and in the best way possible. Can, can I want to I want to stick on that a little bit and and start bringing more of the VA into the conversation with all of this? You know, uh, I think historically it's been like a little bit difficult for for the VA to be able to treat all the needs of especially the mental health needs when it comes to comes to veterans. Can you talk about some of the the, the challenges that come with um, getting those men and women, you know, the right health care and really specifically that behavioral health care? And, you know, how has the VA evolved on this um, in your time, you know, from active duty to retired? Well, the VA is a big organization. And we talk about it as if it's it is one organization. Actually, it's there are many parts to it. Right? There are many major medical centers, and there's research units. So it's it, it is a it's it is a, you know very um, it is very large and one of the largest maybe the largest healthcare system in the country. Uh, so it's it's a complex endeavor for them, and there are lots of challenges for what they need to do to go forward. Um, it's also always I've had a lot of experience with the VA over the years and understand that everything that the VA does or and doesn't do has a political exposure to it. And so this uh, anything we do in this field in mental health or suicide and psychedelics has a political exposure and that has to be factored in at all times. Mm. And that there's a, as you know, there's a huge swirl of politics around all of these uh, medicines, and uh, it's, that it ends up uh, uh, influencing the decisions that people are doing. The VA, understandably, uh, says whatever they do needs to be done in a methodic, responsible way. That's what. That's their mandate with the with the country. That's their mandate with all of us of uh, the Americans. Now, the the field of medicine says a responsible but methodic way is to is to undertake uh, a, a evaluating new treatments in very um, organized, uh, generally randomized controlled trials. Those take a long time to, to, to set up and conduct. You know, there's some folks that say if you have a new treatment, it could take 17 to 20 years for it to get into mainstream medicine. I don't know if we have time to do that. Mm -hmm. Are there other ways that that can be done 
can the VA uh, responsibly undertake and organize other ways to do what it needs to do to treat the veterans who are coming? We've had you know the veterans who served in Iraq and Afghanistan and look at other methods now so that they can determine that these treatments really are going to help. I'm one of those voices that says that they can and should. Well, that's a good pivot, right? Because you're you're uh, a psychiatrist, um, and psychiatrists are, you know, both me- medical doctors that have been trained to think solely like I will only use or prescribe that which has gone through that rigorous FDA gauntlet. Um, but you're also somebody who has treated countless number of you know current soldiers and veterans and and private practice patients who need help now, right? There are, there are people within the VA system like Rachel Yehuda who are trying to move fast and break things. Um, but you know, you've had drilled into you by training. I'm only going to prescribe that, which has been FDA approved. How do you look, how do you personally look at psychedelics, which have not gone through that gauntlet? And then how do you communicate to others who are like you, whether they be psychiatrists or therapists or psychologists or whomever, and say, look, there's a whole new modality out there that is showing value. Uh, How do you do both? How do you keep both? How do you hold both in both sides of your head at the same time? Well, let's step back um, to to 50, now 53 years ago when I started medical school. By the way, that was the year I was born. So thank you. (laughs) <laughs> well, <laughs> great year. <laughs> 1970. We love it. 1970. Uh, when, uh, you know, the, I thought that the best doctors and the best teachers said, you want to be a good doctor? Remember, it's the practice of medicine. The more patients you see, the better doctor you're going to be. The corollary to that is science informs clinical practice. You have to know the science, be really be extremely knowledgeable with it, but it informs what you do because when you get to treat a patient, not just psychiatry, surgery, internal medicine, infectious disease, right? We've always got something new out there Look at what happened with COVID. There's always something new that we encounter in clinical medicine that forces us to go back and and unpack our science and think about how we're going to use it. That's good medicine. Now, that's not necessarily, there's a, I have a feeling that much of that's been lost. That what you've mentioned about what psychiatrists do, that I have to see the evidence first, is really not what good clinical practice is about. I think that that defers, that in fact is a deferment or a a failure to step up. I don't want, maybe failure is not the right word. is it a bit cow? Isn't it also a little bit of cowardice? Uh, you know that you are cloaking yourselves in the the 
absolutes of the double blind system where, you know, you said something, it really occurred to me when you just said this, is this is the practice, not perfection of medicine, right? Everybody's body is different. Everybody's mind is different. And, you know, what may work for treating my ales may not work for Nick or yours or Emmeline's. And we have to try like if you're if the doctor is afraid to try, then the patient won't, you know, receive the benefit. Well, I mean, look, I think here's what you're pointing to is this, and this is where I think that the doctors really are responsible for probing the quote science even more than they typically we hear them do. And I think a lot of good doctors do, by the way. So we know that SSRIs probably help half the patients that we prescribe them to. That's the science. So that means that yes, that organizations like the VA or the American Psychiatric say the front lines, the best practices is prescribing SSRIs. But remember that they only help half our patients. What happens to the other half? Is it not responsibility as a doctor to think about what might work with the other half? Well, I, well, don't SSRIs just mask? They don't treat the underlying issue, right? Like if I have depression, like I may not feel depressed, but the reasons why I am depressed or have anxiety or have OCD or any of these other central disorders of the central nervous system, they're still there. Right. We haven't we haven't addressed them. We're just like putting a Band-Aid on it. And, you know, the the fact that, you know, you take certain SSRIs and either you have to futz with the dosage or you switch from one to the other because they lose efficacy and they're addictive, as are benzodiazepines. Like this leads to the the whole reason why we're talking, which is about psychedelic therapy. Right. Because the thesis is psychedelic therapy gets to the core right it, it lets the the patient and the doctor whether it be the therapist or psychiatrist or whomever like root out that issue and and get rid of it you know or or at least diminish its hold on the patient you know how do you as a um, you know a serious medical doctor who practiced practiced for decades look at psychedelics which is lacking in that massive trove of FDA trials. Like we've got one drug that's close. One, you know, one, well, actually it's not the drug, it's the drug with the therapy that's close to FDA approval. But, you know, we know that hundreds of SEALs are traveling to Mexico or Jamaica for Ibogaine therapy or 5-MeO therapy or psilocybin therapy, and it works. Like, how do you, you know, I'm talking a lot here, but I'm trying to, to get to the point of like, how do we get to the point where the medical profession says, okay, I'm cool. I get it. I'm going to, I'm going to try something that may not fit in this clear box that I've been living my life. Okay. So that's what we're about. That's what APA is trying to do. And so first we're going to challenge the, that box that uh, really became was a very much promoted 40 years ago when Prozac came on the market, which is, oh, these depressions are biologic. We can trace 
the pharma, the neurotransmitters and the neurophysiology, and that's what we have to treat. It turns out that the science really wasn't what it was said to be even then, but that hasn't really been uncovered and fully explained and disclosed until now, 40 years later. So the science that was talked about then is now we're seeing has some uh, flaws in it. What we know from therapy, and we've known this for many years, is that people have ways when when they're struggling with anxiety or struggling with memories or struggling with triggers that cause them that perhaps came from combat or other events, that there's things that happen in their mind that they are trying to grasp and rework and rethink. And it, it, we've known for years, in fact, you can go back to Freud with hypnosis, that it required getting people into a state of mind where they felt comfortable and could think it through and then think about new ways of how they were going to handle these particular memories or these thoughts or these feelings. What in, in the classic psychodynamic therapy uh, modalities or approaches, we think of those as defense mechanisms. What When I talk to practitioners who've been doing this for many, many years, they say what the medicines do is they help us work with those defenses. They help us get the person into a frame of mind that you can now talk to them about what you've mentioned, these issues, these worries, these feelings, and they can then say to themselves, you know, maybe I can reframe this. Maybe I can live with this in a different way. Now I see how this plays out in my life. Wait, when I'm with my partner who might trigger something, now that I know this, I can now get myself into a different way of relating to that partner or when I'm at work. So we can take what we now know about how these medicines help us put people in a frame of mind where they can think about what is their what their worries are, what their feelings are, what their thoughts, and now relearn or learn a new way to go about doing that. That really has been around for decades, maybe 100 years in this field, maybe thousands of years. But now we have to explain it to this generation of practitioners and therapists for what they know and what they were trained to do in a way that they feel comfortable with it and feel confident that they're doing the right thing. That's our that's what we think is most important as we move forward in the field. And I, and I want to uh, stick on that and, and keep the conversation focused on APA. Um, you were uh, appointed executive director earlier this year, um, which congratulations. Um, can you talk about some of the um, or expand upon some of that work that you guys have done in, um, for example, the uh, professional practice guidelines that um, you published alongside Brain Futures earlier this year um, and kind of talk through, you know, how that all came together and then how you guys are are engaging and supporting the the, the community and industry. And, and what are they? Like, what are professional <laughs> practice guidelines for, for, for a lay audience? When I hear professional practice guidelines, I'm like, what the heck is that? Well, so let's start there. So yeah. the professional practice guidelines are just the rules that we, that 
that we lay out for people who are going to be doing the, these treatments and therapies uh, need to understand and set in place where when they do what they need work with patients. Here's what here's a set and setting. Here's what the ethics are. Here's what you have to do, like informed consent. Make sure that the patient comes to you and says, look, I want to do this. You say, OK, here's what it is. Here's the medicine. Here's how it can help. Here's how you might have problems. Here's what we're going to do to keep you safe. Here's how we're going to also work to you. So you tell us and you feel comfortable that you're getting out of it what you need to get out of it. Here's where we're going to do it. So you've got informed consent. You've got all the rules, the guidelines that go into what's good practice. So that's the first step. And in a way, this is what we wanted to tell, the, you know, the essentially anybody who's looking at this, this is a professional practice. This just isn't something that folks who've been around doing this or it's on the streets or been, you know, in your homes or something or in your backyards uh, that's being done in some freewheeling way. This is really a very professional way. There's a there's a way that responsible people go about doing this. So the professional practice guidelines are the first step. And they're there to protect the patient and the the, the therapist, right? It's not, it's, it's both sides because there have been, you know, encounters where therapists have abused patients and also patients have abused therapists. So these, these professional practice guidelines are not targeted at, Shamans, they are targeted at people who are trying to do this in uh, a manner akin to what uh, an internist does when they follow American Medical Association guidelines or when um, a psychiatrist is following APA guidelines. You've just added another P to that. So that makes it APA as opposed to at. Appa. Um, and by the way, these are the dad jokes and you may be a grandpa, but I'm going to still do the dad jokes. But the reality is, you know, uh, psychedelic therapy has been done in a willy nilly fashion for decades, if not centuries. Now, what, what I think Appa is trying to do is to put in uh, clear boundaries on here's what is kosher and here is what is not kosher. Um, and, you know, that has been a controversial issue. And APA as an organization has been controversial. Until you came in, there was a lot of infighting amongst the, the communities of those trying to be above board and those serving the underground market and, you know, dealing with issues of inclusion and access and like, you know, there were a lot of people who three years ago heard the name APA would spit on the ground. How have you tried to change the perception of the organization? Well, one of first is to acknowledge that. I think that, you know, here, this uh, metaphor, I mean, this baby was born and uh, it was messy. It's understandably messy. Because the field uh, didn't have guidelines. The field had not really agreed on what is, quote, what are best practices. 
The field had not said, look, these are rituals, which, by the way, have been around for thousands of years in some ways. These are rituals we are going to acknowledge or respect, reform. So it was very, very messy, understandably. You know, and so it went through this first phase uh, of a couple years. An organization was formed in 2021, late 2021. Uh, and I th I think that it had a, had that particular struggle as uh, it was getting set up. And now it's in the next phase. And I'm brought in for that next phase in a way of being able to go about and say, all right, how do you organize ourselves? How do we work with people? How do we acknowledge that these are the histories, this is the rituals been used? How do we understand what mainstream medicine and healthcare is? How do we understand what payers are? How do we understand what the current professionals are doing, the psychiatrists and the psychologists and the other therapists? And we're going to bring up, bring a, an executive director in who has had experience enough to be able to excerpt from that, extract from that what's important, and now help these practitioners form in a way and be able to collaborate so that they can be most effective in their practice. So this is the next phase. And that's what I'm trying to do here. I, uh, I think the best way that, to do that is to do the work. You know, I mean, it's all about just going out there and saying, here's what we're doing, folks. Tell us what you think as well. It's a collab. It's a team. We're a community. A lot of people have got a number of good ideas. And it's very important for us as uh, at APA to listen to those good ideas and to start the conversations mm -hmm. and to say, let's all let's do that and effectively collaborate so we can now do and take the next steps. What we don't want to do is allow this to again be another free-for-all that we saw in the 70s. How, how has that message been received? You know, by by the historic community, by the, the the those who want to do this the right way, but more importantly, the historic community, the people who's like, I've been literally putting my life on the line for 10 years, 20 years, and you're now coming in to tell me how to run my my practice? Well, one, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tell people how to run their practice. They've been doing that, and they've been good at it, and they've helped a lot of people. Secondly, um, I think they're still checking me out. I think they're checking me out individually, and I think they're checking out the organization. They want to know who is this? Who is this army general? What makes him think that he's got any good ideas or that he can come in? How do I know that he's, you know, not coming undercover in some way? Do they have to salute, by the way, when they meet you for the first time? Do they have to salute? <laughs> they don't. They barely stand up straight. <laughs> like my well, I will. I will. I will salute. <laughs> Thank uh, you. You know, the first time we met, I, I, I struggled to call you Steve. You know, it was always <laughs> drilled in me like somebody who has a title earned their title, and they they that that is a uh, an honorific of respect. But I'm cool with Steve now. I appreciate um, it. Thank you. And it works better, frankly. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Yes. Yeah, it works a whole lot better. You know, um, APA is, how are you funded? Like, where's the money coming from? It's all donor-based. And I think we're at a point here that uh, 
people understand uh, why this is important. And we talk to donors about that until we can grow the membership. And in fact, that where our operating funds come substantially from membership, but that's gonna be a while for us to get that going. So we're donor-based and we are talking to the donors that, that way to explain it to them and why this is important uh, for them and why it's important for the field. If they, if they were interested, which I think they are, and, and uh, having these treatments available I think it's important and understand that this is an option. Uh, and uh, therefore, we've got to be able to uh, uh, speak to and explain what the best practices are. I mean, our mod my motto has been for my career, the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. Mm -hmm. There's no magic here. There are no silver bullets, but there are patients for whom and we, you, you've, you've been telling us about those veterans that go out of the country. Why? Because, frankly, a lot of them are at their end. They're in a deep, deep, I, the men and, and women I treat and have for many years have gotten themselves into a deep black hole. <clears throat> and, and they say, because they do respect me, sir, you know, I, I know when you're in a deep black hole, and uh, I've got to get I've got to get rid of that target. It just turns out that the target is me. And it, that it, really is profound. And I think that kind of plays in well to my next question, Steve. You know, what what are some of the other big initiatives that are are coming up on the front for APA? Like, are you guys going to be you know trying to influence legislation like the Breakthrough Therapies Act? Um, that that like on, on the point just that you made there that would reschedule um, uh, breakthrough therapies like psilocybin or MDMA to clear some of those regulatory hurdles that cause, you know, the, that lead to the veterans having to leave the United States um, to get out of there. Are you guys looking at, you know, legislative solutions to this? And also, how does the role of insurance come into all of this? Are you guys talking um, with regulators to see like, you know, if MDMA is approved for PTSD next year, how... Win, 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 win. <laughs> Too much time in the cannabis industry, I have to say, if I, I default to that. But, you know, yeah, you know, some of those uh, those regulatory and legislative hurdles, how are you guys approaching those fronts? Well, we're going to focus on the practice guidelines. We're going to focus on the best practice. And by focusing on that and clearing it up, we're hoping that once we, we can explain to various audiences this is what good clinical practice is, then that can influence what would be done by other people working in the areas to get uh, breakthrough therapies. And also that we can be working with uh, whoever are going to be the payers uh, for this, both government and private payers and others, uh, that they understand there really is a good clinical practice, that this is being done in a methodic way, and therefore it can be paid for as we think also about configuring the services. So our focus is we've, we've been um, setting up a program for next year, uh, various either one or three conferences, depends, excuse me, a bit on funding, uh, to then look at uh, what goes into good therapy, what are the common features of good therapy, and what would be the specific elements of the therapy with the various medicines, 
How do we know that, in fact, a patient's been helped? Can we identify outcomes? Are there metrics that we can use and explain to people that are going to be looking at this and deciding that it's going to be paid for? And then not only that, we've got to get really practical. We've got to, when you talk about access and equity, we have to look at the fact of what um, across the country, all the counties across the country, of how we would set up clinical services in these various different communities that are vastly different. I mean, half the counties in this country don't have psychiatrists. So, and, and you know, they're and probably just a little bit more than that have, have uh, doctorate level psychologists and other therapists. You raise an interesting question that I've never considered before. If MDMA therapy is approved by the FDA, does that mean only an MD and possibly an MD with a DEA license will be able to prescribe? How do we change that to make it more you know, accessible? Because if you must have uh, an MD license and probably a DEA license, that's a very limited number of, of physicians. And what you just described with the, the, the lack of access to psychiatric care, how do we get it to make it so that, you know, anybody who is appropriately uh, vetted can prescribe and administer? That's our, and that's what we've said as an objective. What do you need to know? If you're going to be a prescriber of, for these medicines, what do you need to know? How do we get you trained? And how do we make sure that both the FDA and the DEA know that this person who's prescribing, that may or may not be an MD, really does have the knowledge that they can prescribe responsibly? Because we need to do that. When there are over 100,000 deaths from fentanyl and other, other opioids in this country, 50 plus thousand deaths from suicide, and who knows what other problems people have, we really, if we're going to be responsible, and for that matter, you know, if we're going to keep our, I mean, the vitality of this country is on the health and mental health of its people. We learned that from COVID. Then we better be thinking very hard of how we get these treatments out to those communities and those people that need it, which means we've got, what we're going to do is figure out if you're a prescriber, what do you really need to know? And then how do we know that that's being done in a responsible way? And we can't just restrict it to MDs, psychiatrists. So we're going to tackle that. Cool. Soon, I hope. Because we don't have a lot of time, right? Because <laughs> this is what we got. This is, this is, we say in the Army, our five-meter target. <laughs> it's right in front of us. Right. <laughs> well, Emily's a hunter. She actually appreciates that reference probably more than I do because I've never actually shot a rifle. But, you know. Yeah. I mean, you got to take what's It's nice to have some things way out there, you know, and have some grand visions and say, oh, yeah, I see something moving out there. Way right, right, right. A click away, a, a thousand meters away. But, you know, whatever I got right in front of me, what I got right in front of me is I've got all these needs out there. I have a mental health crisis, and I have to get these people the tools, the capabilities to be able to deal with it right now. 
Steve, is there any, because you've been extremely generous with your time for us today, we've got, I think, just uh, one or a couple more questions for you. Uh, but one thing that, you know, we, we love to ask on this uh, podcast is, you know, is there a, a story or a topic related to the industry right now that you think deserves more airtime? You know, if you were to open up the Miami Herald or the, the, the New York Times tomorrow morning, you know, is there a topic that you would love to see on that A1 front page that, that you just think is not, not getting the attention it deserves? Well, I mean, uh, look, I'm not, this is your area about stories and what you do with the media. This is not me, you know. So, I'm, I really well, you're am, a good storyteller. I'm the storyteller. I will tell you what really I would feel bad about if I were still on active duty. If I, you know, I was, when I was on active duty, my last assignment was as a commanding general for all the army in the Southeast U.S. And I had responsibilities for military in Latin America and in those days that were going to the Middle East. If I was aware that I had soldiers and veterans, people entitled to middle, our care in our system, had to go outside the country to get the help they needed, I would gulp. I wouldn't be able to digest that. That's not right. I mean, I have a responsibility to these people. Now, it, maybe it's hard to do. Maybe if someone says, well, you don't have the RCT, you can't design it. I'd say, but we. I, what's most important here is that we've got people that are desperate to get help. And we should be figuring out a way to do that where we are have visibility and take our share of the responsibility. And that's the story in my mind that's really most important to you. Uh, and, you know, when you, the other corollary story is the VA says, well, there used to be 20 plus or minus suicides a day. There's lots of folks that say it's much more than that, maybe twice as many. And a lot of them are folks that are homeless. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you also can't ignore the fact that proportionally, there's more veterans in prisons and jails than are proportionally part of the population. Something's not right here. That's the story for me that really is most important to be talking about. It's most important to be talking about being responsible. Mm -hmm. This is what it is to be a responsible American. Knowing where we are, how much hope do you have for solving this, given what's coming down the pipeline, coming through the pipeline? Solving which one of these? Well, solving the mental health crisis, both broadly for all of Americans and then specifically for veterans. I think it's going to be a, a really hard, um, you know, hard, hard push here. Um, there, there's a lot of politics. Um, we're in a, you know, in, in the economics right now, where the economy is going. Uh, I think it's going to be very, very hard. I'm going to 
counter you and say, I have not only complete hope, but faith. You know, I look at guys like Rick Doblin, who for 35 plus years was for the most part, a lone voice in the wild. He got MDMA on the, the precipice and the incentives have shifted in, you know, in our society. Um, and there is a look at how the financial costs associated with mental health have shifted to the point where the incentive structures are more aligned to getting um, treatments that work versus treatments that cover, right, that cover up problems. And it's better for the, the insurance companies and for the government, for Medicare and Medicaid to actually pay for a psychedelic therapy than it is to pay for a pill because the long-term costs for dealing with PTSD are significantly higher than the short-term costs associated with you know, a, 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 a therapy that is proving efficacious. So I have more hope than you, sir. Um, well, it may be, look, I, it's not like, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't have enough hope to think that we needed to get into the, quote, the fight, okay? Um, my job, maybe it's, maybe it's because I'm an army officer, is to say, all right, what are, what are the challenges? And let's be realistic about those challenges. Mm -hmm. And maybe in that way, I'm a little more pessimistic, right? That's fair enough. Do. Okay. <laughs> yep. Yes. Well, look, let's 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 end here on that balance between pessimism and hope, <laughs> because um, I think that it's a it's, it's, a, it's somewhere between the two lies reality. That's fair. Excellent, um, Steve. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Um, and we'd love to have you back um, when we have something more to talk about with APA or maybe something that has happened in the world that is relevant to what your mission is. So a huge thanks to you, um, Dr. and General Steve Zanakis, Executive Director of the American Psychedelic Practitioners Association. Um, and for any of you who want to donate, you can go on their website, which is appa-us.org. Uh, as always, Thank you for listening. If you want to chat with us, you can find us on X, formerly Twitter. Still, I don't get it. Um, with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We're always looking for your feedback, guest ideas, uh, bad dad jokes. I'm open to hearing others tell them, not just me. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher.